Chapter Four, Part Three of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orsi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fordwich Castle Mystery, Part Three. Two of our best men from the yard, Pegram and Elliot, were left in charge of the case. They remained at Fordwich, the little town close by, as did Miss Joan, who had taken up her permanent abode at the Dapplekirk Arms whilst I returned to town immediately after the inquest. Captain Jack had rejoined his regiment, and apparently the ladies of the castle had resumed their quiet, luxurious life, just the same as heretofore. The old lady led her own somewhat isolated, semi-regal life. Miss Henriette fenced and boxed, played hockey and golf, and over the fine castle and its haughty inmates there hovered like an ugly bird of prey the threatening presence of a nameless suspicion. The two ladies might choose to flout public opinion, but public opinion was dead against them. No one dared formulate a charge, but everyone remembered that Miss Henriette had, on the very morning of the murder, been playing golf in the field where the knife was discovered, and that if Miss Joan Duplessis ever failed to make good on her claim to the barony of Dabblekirk, Miss Henriette would remain in undisputed possession. So now, when the ladies drove past in the village street, no one doffed a cap to salute them, and when at church the parson read out the sixth commandment, Thou shalt do no murder, all eyes gazed with fearsome awe at the old baroness and her niece. Splendid isolation reigned at Fordwich Castle. The daily papers grew more and more sarcastic, at the expense of the Scotland Yard authorities, and the public more and more impatient. Then it was that the chief grew desperate, and sent for Lady Molly, the result of the interview being that I once more made the journey down to Fordwich but this time in the company of my dear lady, who had received carte blanche from headquarters to do whatever she thought right in the investigation of the mysterious crime. She and I arrived at Fordwich at 8 p.m., after the usual long wait at Newcastle. We put up at the Dabblekirk Arms, and over a hasty and very bad supper, Lady Molly allowed me a brief insight into her plans. "'I can see every detail of that murder, Mary,' she said earnestly, "'just as if I had lived at the castle all the time. I know exactly where our fellows are wrong, and why they cannot get on, but although the chief has given me a free hand, what I am going to do is so irregular that if I fail I shall probably get my immediate congé, while some of the disgrace is bound to stick to you. It is not too late. You may yet draw back, and leave me to act alone. I looked her straight in the face. Her dark eyes were gleaming. There was the power of second sight in them, or of marvellous intuition, of men and things. "'I'll follow your lead, my Lady Molly,' I said quietly. "'Then go to bed now,' she replied, with that strange transition of manner which to me was so attractive, and to everyone else so unaccountable. In spite of my protest, she refused to listen to any more talk, or to answer any more questions, and perforce I had to go to my room. The next morning I saw her graceful figure, immaculately dressed in a perfect tailor-made gown, standing beside my bed at a very early hour.' "'Why, what is the time?' I ejaculated, suddenly wide awake. "'Too early for you to get up,' she replied quietly. "'I am going to early Mass at the Roman Catholic convent close by.' "'To Mass at the Roman Catholic convent?' "'Yes. Don't repeat all my words, Mary. It is silly and wastes time. I have introduced myself in the neighborhood as the American, Mrs. Silas A. Ogan, whose motor has broken down and is being repaired at Newcastle, while I, its owner, amuse myself by viewing the beauties of the neighborhood. Being a Roman Catholic, I go to Mass first, 
and having met Lady Abelkirk once in London, I go to pay her a respectful visit afterwards. When I come back, we will have breakfast together. You might try, in the meantime, to scrape up an acquaintance with Miss Joan Duplessis, who is staying here, and ask her to join us at breakfast. She was gone before I could make another remark, and I could but obey her instantly to the letter. An hour later I saw Miss Joan Duplessis strolling in the hotel garden. It was not difficult to pass the time of day with the young girl, who seemed quite to brighten up at having someone to talk to. We spoke of the weather and so forth, and I steadily avoided the topic of the forged castle tragedy until the return of Lady Molly at about ten o'clock. She came back looking just as smart, just as self-possessed, as when she had started three hours earlier. Only I, who knew her so well, noted the glitter of triumph in her eyes, and knew that she had not failed. She was accompanied by Pegram, who, however, immediately left her side and went straight into the hotel, whilst she joined us in the garden, and after a few graceful words, introduced herself to Miss Joan Duplessis, and asked her to join us in the coffee-room upstairs. The room was empty, and we sat down to table, I quivering with excitement and awaiting events. Through the open window I saw Elliot walking rapidly down the village street. Presently the waitress went off, and I, being too excited to eat or speak, Lady Molly carried on a running conversation with Miss Joan, asking her about her life in India and her father, Captain Duplessis. Joan admitted that she had always been her father's favorite. "'He never liked Henriette, somehow,' she explained. Lady Molly asked her when she had first known Runa. "'She came to the house when my mother died,' replied Joan, "'and she had charge of me as a baby.' At Pondicherry no one had thought it strange that she came as a servant into an officer's house, where her own sister had reigned as mistress. Pondicherry is a French settlement, and manners and customs there are often very peculiar. I ventured to ask her what were her future plans. "'Well,' she said with a great touch of sadness, "'I can, of course, do nothing whilst my aunt is alive. I cannot force her to let me live at Fordwich, or to acknowledge me as her heir. After her death, if my sister does assume the title and fortune of Dabblekirk,' she added, whilst suddenly a strange look of vengefulness, almost of hatred and cruelty, marred the childlike expression of her face." then I shall revive the story of the tragedy of Runa's death, and I hope that public opinion—she paused here in her speech, and I, who had been gazing out of the window, turned my eyes on her. She was ashy pale, staring straight before her, her hands dropped the knife and fork which she held. Then I saw that Pegram had come into the room, that he had come up to the table, and placed a packet of papers in Lady Molly's hand. I saw it all as in a flash— there was a loud cry of despair like an animal at bay, a shrill cry, followed by a deep one from Pegram of, No, you don't! And before anyone could prevent her, Joan's graceful young figure stood outlined for a moment at the open window. The next moment she had disappeared into the depth below, and we heard a dull thud which nearly froze the blood in my veins. Pegram ran out of the room, but Lady Molly sat quite still. I have succeeded in clearing the innocent, she said quietly, but the guilty has meted out to herself her own punishment. Then it was she? I murmured, horror-struck. Yes, I suspected it from the first, replied Lady Molly calmly. It was this conversion of Runa to Roman Catholicism, and her consequent change of manner, which gave me the first clue. But why, why? I muttered. 
"'A simple reason, Mary,' she rejoined, tapping the packet of papers with her delicate hand, and breaking open the string that held the letters, she laid them out upon the table. "'The whole thing was a fraud from beginning to end. The woman's marriage certificate was all right, of course. But I mistrusted the genuineness of the other papers from the moment that I heard that Runa would not part with them and would not allow Mr. McKinley to have charge of them. I am sure that the idea at first was merely one of blackmail. The papers were only to be the means of extorting money from the old lady, and there was no thought of taking them into court. Runa's part was, of course, the important thing in the whole case, since she was here prepared to swear to the actual date of the first Madame du Plessis' death. The initiative, of course, may have come either from Joan or from Captain du Plessis himself, out of hatred for the family who would have nothing to do with him and his favorite younger daughter. That, of course, we shall never know. At first Runa was a Parsi, with a dog-like devotion to the girl whom she had nursed as a baby, and who, no doubt, had drilled her well into the part she was to play. But presently she became a Roman Catholic, an ardent convert, remember, with all a Roman Catholic's fear of hellfire. I went to the convent this morning. I heard the priest's sermon there, and I realized what an influence his eloquence must have had over poor, ignorant, superstitious Runa. She was still ready to die for her young mistress, but she was no longer prepared to swear to a lie for her sake. After Mass I called at Fordwich Castle. I explained my position to old Lady Dabblekirk, who took me into the room where Runa had slept and died. There I found two things, continued Lady Molly, as she opened the elegant reticule which still hung upon her arm, and placed a big key in a prayer-book before me. The key I found in a drawer of an old cupboard in the dressing-room where Runa slept, with all sorts of odds and ends belonging to the unfortunate woman, and going to the door which led into what had been Joan's bedroom, I found that it was locked, and that this key fitted into the lock. Runa had locked that door herself on her own side. She was afraid of her mistress. I knew now that I was right in my surmise. The prayer-book is a Roman Catholic one. It is heavily thumb-marked there, where false oaths and lying are denounced as being deadly sins, for which hell-fire would be the punishment. Runa, terrorized by the fear of the supernatural, a new convert to the faith, was afraid of committing a deadly sin. Who knows what passed between the two women, both of whom have come to so violent and terrible an end? Who can tell what prayers, tears, persuasions, Joan Duplessis employed from the time she realized that Runa did not mean to swear to the lie which would have brought her mistress wealth and glamour until the awful day when she finally understood that Runa would no longer even hold her tongue, and devised a terrible means of silencing her for ever. With this certainty before me, I ventured on my big coup. I was so sure, you see. I kept Joan talking in here, whilst I sent Pegram to her room, with orders to break open the locks of her handbag and dressing-case. There, I told you that if I was wrong, I would probably be dismissed from the force for irregularity, as of course I had no right to do that. But if Pegram found the papers there, where I felt sure they would be, we could bring the murderer to justice. I know my own sex pretty well, don't I, Mary? I knew that Joan Duplessis had not destroyed, never would destroy, those papers. Even as Lady Molly spoke, we could hear heavy tramping outside the passage. I ran to the door, and there was met by Pegram. "'She is quite dead, miss,' he said. "'It was a drop of forty feet, and a stone pavement down below.' The guilty had, indeed, meted out her own punishment to herself. Lady Abelkirk sent Lady Molly a cheque for five thousand pounds, 
the day the whole affair was made known to the public. I think you will say that it had been well earned. With her own dainty hands, my dear lady had lifted the veil which hung over the tragedy of Fordwich Castle, and with the finding of the papers in Joan Duplessis's dressing-bag, and the unfortunate girl's suicide, the murder of the Indian woman was no longer a mystery. End of Part 3 of The Fordwich Castle Mystery End of Chapter 4